All right, the past couple of weeks, we've been in Matthew 16 and then Matthew 18. We were looking at these two places in the gospel where Jesus uses the word church, the two times that the word church comes out of Jesus' mouth as recorded in the gospels. Uh, and, and I've talked about the fact that your first thought may be, Jesus only says church twice in, in all four gospels. And I've reminded you that the church didn't exist yet when Jesus was on earth. It was after his death, the resurrection, and then even after his ascension into heaven when he sends the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, the church is born. And so these two times that Jesus references the church is something that he's talking about in advance, something that's coming later. And I just felt like it was a really good thing for us to sit down in those two chapters and say, out of all the things Jesus could have talked about when he talked about the church, the two times that we get to read him saying that word in the Gospels, what were the things that he actually talked about? What would be good for us to know as a church that out of everything Jesus could have said about his church, here's what he said about us. Here's what he said to us uh, in, in the Gospels. And so we looked at Matthew 16 two weeks ago. We looked at Matthew 18 last week. And I just have this feeling that I cut you all off both weeks because I, I know that I said a lot. I'm confessing that. I had a lot of things to say. And I feel like there's probably more that you all have seen in both uh, of those texts than you've gotten to share yet, things that God has been showing you. And so I wanted to go back and spend one more week and just put the two of them together, sixteen Matthew 16 and 18 together, and give you all the chance to say, here's some other stuff, truths I see about God, things that God's saying to my heart, things that I feel like God is saying to the church, and make sure that we've, we've really sat down and, and spent enough time sitting in this text and really digesting it and letting God speak to us. And so we're going to be in the same two places today. If God really impresses something on your heart and you're like, well, I feel like we already kind of covered that, say it again anyway today. If you feel like it's something important that he's telling you to share with us, share with us. And so we're going to pray together. We're going to acknowledge that only God uh, can teach us spiritual truths by his spirit, that we need him to do something right now that only he can do. And then we're going to read Matthew 16, a few verses from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, asking the spirit to teach us that we would encounter God in his word, that the main answer that we would get this morning is to the question, what's this teach us about God? Do we know more of who God is and what he's like because of the time that we've spent in his word hearing from his spirit? And then also secondarily, whatever God is teaching us about himself, if those things are true about God, what's that mean for us? Like, what's he teaching us about us? And also, how's he speaking to our hearts? And so then we're going to examine our hearts and say, if this is who God is, if this is what God says to his people, if this is what God's church looks like, what's he saying to us right now about our hearts, our lives, our church? How does he want to change us from the inside out to do a spiritual work in us as the Spirit of Christ lives in us to make us more like Jesus and make us more like the type of people and the type of church he calls us to be? And then we're going to wrap up by praying again and saying, God, Will you please do this in us? You have to do this. We are dependent on you. We need you to do this, and we trust you to do this. So that's where we're headed this morning. If you will, let's pray together right now, and then I'll read these sections. Father, we know that you are everywhere all the time, that you are the all-present and ever-present God but we also know that in a unique and special way, you have chosen to manifest your presence and reveal yourself to us when we gather as your people 
in the name of Jesus and when we come to you in prayer and in your word and that you reveal yourself and you teach and you speak out of the Bible. And so we are here right now, Father, for that purpose. Please let us see you. Give us spiritual eyes to see. Let us hear you. Give us spiritual ears to hear. Stir up faith and love and trust inside of our hearts and open up our minds to the truth of your word and open up the truth of your word to us. And please teach us right now by your Holy Spirit from your word as only you can. We need you to do it. We confess our dependence on you. We ask you to do it. And we trust you to do it because of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 16. Uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or your devices, starting in verse 13, it'll also be up on the screen here if you just want to read along there. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I'm just going to go ahead and circle that now. That's been a huge answer we've looked at the past couple of weeks. That this is who Jesus is. The rescuer, the promised Messiah, the one that God has been promising to send to fulfill all of his promises to his people and rescue his people for centuries. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this truth right up here of who Jesus is, I will build my church. So there's that first reference to church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then if you want to flip over to Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 12, and this is in the middle here is Jesus' second reference to the church. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen... Tell it to the church. So here's your next reference to the church. And if they refuse to listen to, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 
Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. All right, what are you hearing this morning as we read those two sections together? especially truths about who God is. What's that teach us about God? His character, his nature, how he works, about Father, Son, and Spirit, how he deals with his people. Truths about God and also truths about us, who we should be in light of who God is. What stands out to you? God is so gracious. Good place to start. God is so gracious, and there's a big connection here, of therefore God expects us to be gracious as well. And there is kind of a built-in condition there. God only expects you to be gracious if you've received grace, right? Now, if you want to go live a life where you don't ever receive grace from God, don't worry about being gracious. Like, do you see that in, in the parable that Jesus tells? And, and we'll circle back around it. I want to spend more time on that, but it's definitely, it, it's like the main emphasis that Jesus puts in that whole second section about the church of forgiveness and mercy and grace and pursuing restoration, that if you are a person in God's kingdom who has received grace from God, then you're a person who lives out grace toward others. And if you don't live out grace toward others, maybe you're not living in the kingdom of grace. So yeah, God is gracious and God expects us to be gracious as well. What else stands out to you? Yeah, God cares what his followers believe about him and who he is. You know, you think right up here with Jesus, he said, hey, you know, what's everybody saying about me? And they give him some answers. And he's like, what about you? Who do you say I am? There's a real, there's a priority here for Jesus of saying, 
do you know the truth about me yet? Do you believe the truth about me? This is certainly not an anything goes type approach for Jesus where he's like, hey, whatever you believe, as long as you're sincere, it's a good thing. Like, no, we need to check in. Are you getting this yet? Do you realize who I am? And then when Peter gets the right answer, Jesus isn't like, well, hey, yeah, so now just go be sincere in that. And if some of you think something different, be sincere in that. No, like when Peter gets the right answer, Jesus is like, that's such an important answer that it only could have come from God. Like, the truth matters because the truth comes from God, the truth of who Jesus is. And it's a very narrow, exclusive thing that Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised by God, the chosen one from God. And no one else in the history of the world and any other religion is Jesus and Jesus alone. And it matters that we see this truth and that we believe this truth and that we speak this truth, that Jesus would be held up as who he really is. What else? God loves and cares about each individual. That's a great thing to see in this parable that Jesus tells about the hundred sheep and one wanders off. It is certainly something that God's saying to you this morning. Yes, he loves, he loves his church. He does, corporately. And he loves the world. God is passionate for reaching the world and calling them to repentance. But God loves all the individuals of the church and all the individuals in the world. And so for you this morning, God loves you. Like specifically, individually. He came to find you. And also the person sitting next to you. Like that's the message for them this morning. And the person sitting behind you and people who aren't here yet, people who are still wandering off and lost. But just hear that for just a minute this morning. The God of the universe, the king who has everything, he really does look at you and say, I love you. I want you. I choose to come get you. It's a great thing to see about God's heart towards you. And it's amazing, like if you start to believe that even just a little bit, the way that it can change your life. The things that you don't need anymore from the world, from other people, because you know that God loves you this way. And the things that you're free to do, the risk you can take, the, the boldness with which you can live, because he's got you. <laughs> Him. You specifically, individually, individually, directly. Like the one, not just the group of sheep, you. I hope that you can feel and know and believe God's love for you and experience the power of that in your life to change your life. What else? I think there was another hand over here. To, yeah. Can you give us a little more where you're, where you're looking right now? Yeah, there's a whole lot of depth to this, and I'll try to, I know some of you may not have heard, especially if you're listening online. So the, the original way in this, this kind of application for us, don't change 
who you are based on what others do. And the thought here is, you know, when Peter's saying, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And it sounds like, and this is like a really good insight for us, so I hope that you can hear this this morning. It sounds like what Peter's saying is, like, my forgiveness depends on their behavior. You know, up to seven times, like, if they sin against me once, I'll give them forgiveness. They sin against me twice, I'll give them forgiveness. They sin against me three times, I'll give them... And that was the Jewish law, was three, and Peter's like, and I get it, Jesus, that you're way more forgiving and way more gracious than that, and, and you're raising the bar, and you're going way beyond the law, and so I'm going to double it, so that gets me to six, and then just to be safe, I'll add another one, so that gets me to seven, and that's the good, perfect Jewish number anyway, so surely you'll be happy with that. If they sin against me seven times, I'll forgive them all seven times, but implied here, if they do it again, now my response changes. That my response is based on them. If, if any time in those first seven they get it, great. But if they don't, now I go from a position of forgiveness to unforgiveness, which means that what they do dictates what I do, whether I'm forgiven or not. And Jesus' basic answer, if you were going to think about everything he says from there on, is this. Who you are isn't based on what anybody else does. Who you are is based on who your king is. And your king is a forgiving and merciful king. And the only reason you are in his kingdom is because he has forgiven you and had mercy on you. And it is a kingdom of forgiveness and a kingdom of mercy. And if you live in that kingdom, who you are is based on the king of that kingdom. And it, so it doesn't matter what anybody else does. It's not about, the one of the ways that I think I would say it is, Peter asked for a limit on forgiveness. And I'm just going to write this down here. Peter's wanting a limit on forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, I'm not giving you a limit on forgiveness. I'm calling you to a lifestyle of forgiveness. But Peter, you're still asking the wrong question. There isn't a how many times. There isn't a, well, they've done this, so now I'm done. I'm going to switch now from mercy to, to wrath. I'm going to switch from forgiveness to unforgiveness. There is no place where that happens because who you are isn't based on them. Who you are is based on Jesus. Do you see the centrality of who God is? With all, this is why we would say the question, what does this teach us about God? Is the central question that we could ever ask anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in our entire lives, that who God is, is the definition of all that is good and all that is right and all that he is calling us to be and all that we will be if he's the one living in us. And so if you ask who he is, once you know who he is, nothing else defines you now. Nothing else in the world. No one else's behavior. Nothing that they do. Nothing that they say. God and God alone and who he is and his heart and his nature and his character. And if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus has died for you to offer you grace and forgiveness and mercy and righteousness and rewards that you could never, ever earn. If you believe that and you are following him and he's living in you, then this is who you become. Because of him. Because that's who he is. And so one of the ways that I think it's a good built-in that God gives us to measure, like where am I you know, in my growth of spiritual maturity? Where am I in my progress of, you know, one of the fancy church words, of sanctification, like growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus, is to ask how much of who I am and what I do is still dictated 
by external things. Other people, what they say, what they do, how they act, how they treat me, my circumstances. Like how much of me is dictated by that? Because whatever, whatever part of me is dictated by that is not yet being defined and controlled and led by Jesus the way that it's supposed to be. And then, you know, the other part of the question, and then how much of me is really Christ living in me? How much of me is really dependence on his spirit and what's flowing out of me is what he's living in me? How much of me looks like my king? How much of me that regardless of what happens, regardless of what anybody else does, it's Jesus and Jesus alone for me and I'm clinging to him and he's living in me and I'm trusting him and I'm depending on him. The more dependent you are on the people and the stuff around you, the, the less you're really trusting Jesus in that moment. The more dependent you are on Jesus, the more you'll be defined by Jesus. We'll leave it at that for now unless there's more you all want to say. But there's so much we could, we could sit down there all day. What else? What else is God saying to you this morning? God offers mercy to guilty people before demanding that justice be satisfied. And I know the way we phrase that right there, it can make it sound like these two things, God's mercy and justice, are like in contradiction with each other, and they aren't at all anywhere in the Bible, but even in this parable. And, and you know, where this is coming from is this idea that, that the king says, okay, everybody that owes me money has got to pay it back. And you've got this guy that owes the equivalent, we looked last week, of $7.2 billion. And at a servant's wages, it was going to take him 164,000 years to earn that much and pay it back. He can never, ever pay this back. And the king says, I'll forgive it. Right? Mercy is offered. When the guy hasn't done anything right to earn it, like even when you look, the guy doesn't even ask for mercy. Be patient with me, and I'll pay back everything. Like he's still saying, like, I will pay you back. I'll find a way to do this. I'll figure it out. Like, either he doesn't understand how big the debt is or he doesn't understand how inadequate he is. But either way, he's not telling the truth about his situation. He is not going to pay it back. Like, he's looking at the king and he's saying something that is not true. He's not asking for mercy yet. And the king still offers mercy, still offers to forgive it. But this servant doesn't step into a place of mercy. We know he doesn't step into a place of mercy because his heart's not changed by mercy. And he goes out and he demands justice from someone who owes him much less than what he owed the king. And then, because he hasn't stepped into a place of mercy, because mercy hasn't been allowed to satisfy justice, right? The $7.2 billion debt, justice demands that it be paid, but mercy says the king can pay it for you. The king can say, I will pay that cost. I'll absorb your debt instead of you having to pay it. And so then justice is still satisfied. It's just satisfied by mercy. But because the guy wouldn't step into mercy, now the king comes back and says, okay, you turned down mercy. Here's what's left for you. You got to pay yourself. Just God's righteousness, the truth of who God is, the truth of God's nature demands that justice be satisfied. 
but he doesn't demand that you satisfy it. In his mercy and grace, he says that he will satisfy it for you. But you have to trust him. You have to receive that mercy and grace. You have to step into a place of mercy and a life of mercy. And again, I think we'll probably come back to that in just a minute, but anything else? Yeah. Yeah, you know, based on what we've just said, if this servant owes $7.2 billion and it's going to take him 164,000 years to earn that much, when it says that he's thrown into jail until he should pay back all he owed, like this is forever, right? You're thrown into jail until you die because you haven't paid back all you owe by the time that you die. And now that you're dead, you're not going to earn any more wages, so you're never paying back what you owe, right? Like this is forever, and what he's saying is that if we reject God's mercy, we will pay our own debt forever in hell. And I know that's not a popular thing to teach today but it's just, it's true. It's what Jesus says a lot in the New Testament. And I hope this little illustration will help because I know sometimes we have a hard time swallowing this thought today. It's like, how? how? Like for whatever you think your sins are, and for most of us, if it's our sins, we think they're like this. You know, but somebody else's sins are like this. But if it's ours, they're like, How? Would I go to hell for this? Or even we look at somebody else, how would they go to hell for this? I think one of the best ways to think about it is that, you know, the, the sermon notes that we've got this morning, I don't know how many copies there were back there. There's a lot, right? And they're not valuable. This sheet of paper did not cost much at all. If you came in here and there was one of those sitting on the chair next to you and you spilled your coffee on it and then you took it up and you just watered it up and you threw it away, do you think that anybody's going to be like, hey, you owe us for that? Do you think we're going to say that? Why not? It's not worth much, is it? I mean, like a penny, like maybe four cents? I don't know. It's a very small thing because this is not valuable at all. But now I want you to imagine that somehow we ended up with like the original handwritten manuscript of Romeo and Juliet and Shakespeare had signed it himself, and it's laying on the chair next to you. And then, like, instead of just, oh, I accidentally knocked my coffee over, you look at it, and you're like, I don't know whose that is, but I hate the fact that they've got something that great, and I don't. And so you spit on it, and you pour your coffee on it, and you rip it up on purpose. Do you think there's going to be a price to be paid for that? Like, how much would that be worth? Does anybody have any idea? Because I don't have any idea. It's millions of dollars, isn't it? Like if we had that handwritten by Shakespeare, signed by Shakespeare, original manuscript, it's so much more valuable 
that, that the debt you now owe, the price you would have to pay for it, is astronomically higher than this. And the thing we have to grasp is you did basically the exact same thing. Now, your intent was different behind it, but you did the same thing. You spilled coffee on it, you destroyed it, but the object was more valuable. Do you know how much more God is worth than a handwritten manuscript of Romeo and Juliet? His glory, his nature, his character, the awe and the respect and the reverence and the worship and the trust and the devotion and the love that he deserves from us. Can you start to grasp what it's like for us to sin against him? What, what the cost of that must be? When you treat his name and his glory with contempt, when you don't believe him, like the, the price that you owe for your sin isn't based on how bad or big your sin is. The price you owe for your sin is based on how great and big and glorious and good God is, and you've sinned against him. You owe the king. And the king is infinitely worthy, so you owe an infinite debt. The king's willing to forgive that debt in Jesus. He sent an infinitely valuable sacrifice to cover your infinite debt. He's willing to do that. But if you reject God's mercy in Jesus, there's no other place to find mercy. There is nothing else that can pay that debt. There's nothing else of infinite value in this universe other than the blood and life of Jesus. Nothing else will cover your debt. And if you won't come to him in Jesus, there's nowhere else for you to go. And it is an infinite debt. And that means you'll pay it forever and still never get caught up. And it is not a cruelty of God. It's the reality of his worth and value. And it's the reality of what it looks like if we reject his mercy and love and say, no, I, want to live, I don't want to live in your mercy and love. I want to live somewhere else. In effect, he says, okay, go live somewhere else. Here's what that looks like. Pay your own debt forever. C.S. Lewis says that at the end of time, there will only be two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. Like either you will submit and surrender to him in faith and trust, and you will live in his mercy and grace and say, praise God that your will was one of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Thy will be done. Or you'll say, I don't want that. I don't want to live that. I reject that. I want to live somewhere else outside your mercy and love and grace. And God will say, okay, thy will be done. He also says, C.S. Lewis says that there's None in hell who didn't choose it. So yeah, if we reject God's mercy, we will pay our own debt forever in hell. One more truth about God or one more thing God's saying to your heart. God is in our midst. What in these uh, sections made you say that? Point us to it if you don't mind. Oop. There we go, perfect. Back up here. Yeah, 20. For where two or three gather, 
in my name, there am I with them. The God of the universe and God the Son who died for you, this is Jesus speaking right here, is with us this morning. In this, this is why we come and we expect something spiritual and supernatural to happen in our hearts. This is why we would pray for a spiritual work because the one who can do it is here. He's promised to be here. And this is why I pray that we never settle for a human teacher or human teaching or human ability or, or human results. Jesus is offering something so much more. This is also why you can lead a community group. <laughs> right? Because you don't have to do it. Jesus promises he will show up and he will do it and he will give you what you need to be part of the church and to live out the type of relationships that he describes here. That as you're stepping out in faith and saying, yeah, I see what Jesus says about his church and I want to live that out. And here we are gathering in the name of Jesus in, in submission and trust to what he says. He says, so now I'm here with you. I'll come alongside you and I'll live inside you and I'll give you what you need and I'll do this with you. Like it really does just boil down to believing what Jesus says. Do we believe what Jesus says? Or are we going to keep doing what feels comfortable to us or makes sense to us or, or just what we think, yeah, it's just what we do. And so do we believe what Jesus says? It's so, so good right here. And I'm, I'm so glad we, this is a perfect, I think, segue to a few things I feel like God was really putting on my heart of, hey, we haven't really hit on this yet. And I wanted to circle back to it today. The first thing is these two times that Jesus uses the word church, I feel like there's a question. I know that I haven't, I haven't done a good job yet. I don't feel like explicitly answering that I want to make sure we answer before we move on to other passages in the weeks coming up. And the first thing is these two times that Jesus uses the word church, based on what he says, what should our understanding of what the church is be? I didn't say that very well, but how should we think of the church? What is the church based on what Jesus says. So right here in Matthew 18, it's where we are, when he says, okay, you and your brother or sister, there's something going wrong between you. They've sinned against you. And Jesus says, no, you, this one person, you, just between the two of you right here, right? You and your brother or sister. So you, this one person, you go to this other person and try to work it out. If they don't listen, all right, Take some other people with you. So now two or three people are going to this one person. And then if they don't listen to them, now you're going to the church. Based on what we've seen so far, you got one person going to a person, then you got two or three people going to a person. Based on that pattern, what do you think the church is in Jesus' mind? People. Yeah. The church is people. Let's just start there. I mean, do you see how clear that is? You don't bring people to a building and say, this brick's going to talk to you about what you did wrong to me. You don't bring people to a set of programs and say, these programs are going to talk to you about what you did wrong to me. That's not Jesus. Before the church exists, when Jesus is talking about what the church is going to be, this is what he's thinking of. People. That's no small thing. It really is not a small thing to realize that he intends for us to be the church. We can gather in a building. 
We can have programs that help us grow as his people, but that's not the church. The people are the church. And then more specifically, what are these people doing? We talked about this last week. Somebody has sinned. What are these people supposed to do for that person who has sinned? What's the word up here in verse 15? Do you see it? Go. Pursue. Pursue the sinner and try to bring them back to a place of repentance and restoration and reconciliation. So the church is people. Take the period off of there now. Who are pursuing restoration and reconciliation. This is the church that Jesus has in mind. It's the only thing that he talks about the church doing. Like He himself, his mouth, while he's on earth, out of the Gospels, is that the church would be a group of people who are pursuing reconciliation and restoration. And that it's so serious that we'll get the entire church involved for just one person. Now, why? There's one other thing he says about the church. Why would the church be like that? I'm just going to keep doing this. Because of who Jesus is. Do you see that? Because of who Jesus is. If it's his church and he's building it, what would it mean for him to be the Messiah? That he was the one that God had sent to come and get God's lost people to find them and save them and rescue them and bring them back to God, to restore them and reconcile them to God. That's who Jesus is. And he says that his church will be built on that foundational rock, the truth of who he is as the Messiah. And so if a church is being built on a truth, what, what type of church would that be? Again, not a building. Right? What's built on a truth? Believers. Awesome. I was, thinking, I was thinking people who believe that truth. Right? If you have a truth, what you build on, if that's the foundation, what's being built on it is the people who believe that truth. And so now we've got the church is people. And it really goes up here first because this is Matthew 16. But the who... Believe the truth of who Jesus is and therefore, and then we go up here. The church is people who believe the truth of who Jesus is and therefore who are pursuing restoration and reconciliation. This is the church. People who believe the gospel. That was that gospel truth foundation. And then because they believe the truth of what Jesus has done for them and is doing in them, they are doing that with one another. That's the gospel relationships piece. Gospel truth of who Jesus is. Gospel relationships of pursuing reconciliation. And then, if we see that that's who the church is, the second thing that really stood out to me that we hadn't covered yet is this right here. Jesus says this both times. It's like the one connection between the two of them. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's in chapter 16. And then down here in chapter 18, he says the exact same thing. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's the one connection between these two passages, like the one thing that he repeats, I mean. 
and I'm just going to be honest with you right now. I do not feel at all confident or certain that I understand everything Jesus means there. Okay? And if you want to lead a community group and you come to a passage like this, I would love for you to say things like that when that's true. I I don't know. Let's pray and ask God what, what he wants us to teach us about him this morning. And let's not get distracted about the things we don't understand. Whole books have been written, just so you know, like not just about these verses, but just about the verb tenses in these verses. And I don't understand what they mean. Um, I, I just don't. I don't know everything he means here, but here's what I would say that I do know for sure. And this is incredible if you really start to think about it. Jesus has given great spiritual power to his church. He is telling you that when you believe and declare the truth of who he is, the things that you are saying and sharing on earth have spiritual impact in heaven. The things are bound up and set free in heaven because you have shared the gospel truth of who Jesus is. And then when you pursue restoration and reconciliation, when you chase down sinners in their sin, and you say, I'm not going to let this relationship stay broken. As far as it depends on me, as far as it is within my power, here's mercy, here's forgiveness, here's grace. I'm calling out to you. I'm calling you to come back. This is a safe place for you to come and repent and confess and be healed and have your heart changed. When you live that out, something happens in heaven of eternal significance, that your actions on earth bind up things in heaven or set things free in heaven. And I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know when we get up there what we're going to see and exactly what it's going to look like. I just know that it's way, way greater than anything you've got in mind. And Jesus has given his church that power. His people who are believing the gospel and then pursuing restoration and reconciliation because of that, restoring people to God and restoring people to one another, it has spiritual impact in heaven for all eternity. That's what he's calling you to do with your life. Do you realize you can live your whole life in this world and you could be extremely successful or not, but let's just say that you are and you could... You could be powerful, you could be influential, you could be really wealthy, you could be well-respected, you could achieve a lot, you could accomplish a lot. Someday you're going to die. And most people are going to forget what you've done. And your kids are going to throw it all away, or your grandkids, or your great-grandkids. Right? Or, let's just take it out, for, let's just, it keeps happening. Someday the sun's going to burn out, and we're, this whole place is freezing and it's done. One way or the other, everything you do on this earth is fleeting and temporary and passing away. It will not last, and it will not matter. And you can give your life to that and throw it all away. Or Jesus is saying, you can be my church, and you can be my people, and the things you say and the things you do here on earth, when they're connected to my gospel, they will matter forever in the spiritual realms. Do you know what a high view Jesus has of his church? How significant it is spiritually in heaven right now that you would say, yes, I want to be part of his church. I believe these truths and I want to live out reconciliation and restoration that Jesus has given great spiritual power to his church. And that spiritual power 
is so closely tied to the mindsets that he's outlining down here with Peter where he's saying, has your heart been changed? Like, are you living out forgiveness now? And I, I want us to come back to it because we talked a little bit last week about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And I thought another good way to say what we saw in this last parable is that no prerequisite is required for forgiveness. You see that with the king here, right? The man's done nothing right. He owes the whole debt. And the man's not even confessing how much he owes. I'll pay you back. He's standing in front of the king telling a lie. He can't pay him back. Either he's lying to himself because he thinks he can when he can't, or he's lying to the king because he knows he can't and he's still saying that he will. And with no repentance, the king offers forgiveness. The king offers. It's not dependent on who that servant is or what he does. It's dependent on who the king is. This is Jesus hanging on the cross offering you forgiveness. When you haven't repented. When you haven't. Like, he forgave you first. (laughs) Not because you responded to him, but because of who he is. But then the second piece we see in this parable is that a response is required for reconciliation. The servant does not respond to the mercy of the king in a way that his heart has changed. We know that he doesn't really receive mercy because when you receive mercy, mercy changes you and you start to give mercy. And he's not changed and he doesn't give mercy because he doesn't respond. There is no reconciliation between him and the king. He ends up separated from the king, cast out of his kingdom, cast into prison. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Yet the king has offered, but the servant hasn't responded. this This is Jesus on the cross offering forgiveness. And there's one thief that says, I believe it. And he responds in faith. And he's reconciled to his king. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there's another thief who doesn't believe it and doesn't respond in faith and dies in his sin, separated from his king. And so the same in your life. This this first one is the hard one for us. No prerequisite is required for forgiveness. Forgiveness is a deal in your own heart. You forgiving other people is between you and Jesus, not you and them. How much is Jesus changing you? How much is Jesus living in you? Are you in a place where you're ready? Yes, I'll be reconciled if they respond. Yes, the door's always open. Yes, grace and mercy are always being extended. And and I think the way to understand what Jesus is saying right here is that at the end when he says, hey, if if you don't forgive that way, then this is how my Heavenly Father is going to forgive you, is that if we think of this place, like if we think of mercy as a place, like a physical location... And you're saying, if you step into mercy, this is where forgiveness is. And this is where forgiveness is for you. So you step into mercy and God offers you forgiveness. But this is also where forgiveness is for others. So if you step into mercy, you will be forgiving others. And it all happens in this place. Like if you're in this place, both things are happening. You've stepped into mercy, and God gives forgiveness to you. But you've stepped into mercy, which means you start giving forgiveness to others. And so if on the other's piece you step out here and you say no forgiveness, 
For them, you've chosen to step out into a place of no mercy. Do you see that? Like by stepping out of forgiveness and out of mercy, you're stepping out of God's forgiveness and mercy to you. Now, this does not mean that you earn God's forgiveness, right? Because he's offering it before you've done anything. Before, like it's already there being offered to you. He's inviting you to step into it, to receive it, and then to live in it. It also doesn't mean that you're going to get this perfect. All right? Like I'm not trying to tie up some heavy burden and put it on your back when I can't carry it myself. You need Jesus for this. This is not natural. This is supernatural. And this is not some law for you. Well, I've got to go figure out a way to forgive. You don't have to figure out a way to forgive people in your own strength or willpower this morning. You don't have to do it. You come to Jesus and you say, I can't. Like That's the first step, right? You confess, I can't. That's why I need you. That's why I need you to forgive my hard, sinful, cold, unloving heart, and I need you to live in me and change me. But the very first step is to acknowledge, hey, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and I'm willing to admit that I'm not going to pretend now that what I'm doing is okay, and I'm not going to try to justify it. I'm not going to say, well, anybody would do this. Anybody wouldn't do this. Jesus wouldn't do this. <laughs> and he defines us, not anybody else. And so the first step is to say, I can't do this on my own, but that's exactly why I need to step into mercy. I need you to give me the heart that I'll never have on my own. I need you to give me the love that I'll never have on my own. I need you to give me the grace that I'll never have on my own. I need you to give me the mercy that I'll never have on my own. I need you to live your love, your grace, your mercy through me, because if it's mine, it's not enough. Like He is bringing you to a place where you are certain that you're not enough. And then he's offering you the hope that it's okay that you're not enough because he is. And if you trust him, he will be enough for you and he will be enough in you. And the last way I want you to see this before we wrap up, when, he, when Jesus starts using words like this 77 times or 70 times 7, we've already talked about it. He's not putting a limit on it. He's saying it's so much you can't keep count. Right? He's calling you to a lifestyle. And then when you get down here and it's 10, this is the guy's debt, 10,000 bags of gold, $7.2 billion. Emery, uh, my six-year-old, has, does this thing with me sometimes at night where I'll tell her goodnight and I'll tell her I love her. And then she says, I love you more. And I know what my response is supposed to be. And so I say, I love you most. And then she always ramps it up, and she'll say, I love you, Google. Because she knows Google's the number with the hundred zeros at the end, like a really, really big number. And so, you know, I'm not going to let her top me in a math game, so I love you, infinity. And I always think that that should win, right? But she pulls out this six-year-old card. That's a really good one. She goes, I love you, pie. And the very first time she did it, I didn't understand. And then I realized that I told them one time that pi never ends, you know, like the number 3.141, da, 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 da. Like it never, it's a never-ending decimal. Well, Emory has no concept of what a decimal is yet. She just knows that number goes, so I can be like, that's less than four. And she's like, no, it goes on forever. I'm like, no, really, it's between three and four. She said, no, it never ends. And so in her mind, pi is bigger than infinity because pi keeps going on forever. But listen, that's really good right here. Like I know she doesn't have the numerical value right, but she's got the concept. Jesus isn't saying $7.2 billion. And Jesus isn't saying 77 times or 490 times. He's saying, you don't understand how much. 
You don't, under, you don't have a number for it. It goes on and on and on. And make sure you see what he's saying here. He's saying, that's your debt to the king. You don't understand how much you owe him. And you don't understand how much he's willing to forgive you. And if you ever start to be honest with yourself about that, then there won't be a number anymore on how much you forgive others. Like none of these numbers have a numerical value in this story. They have an emotional and spiritual impact that says more than you can imagine. More than you can imagine you owe God. But more than you can imagine God loves you. And more than you can imagine God's mercy will cover everything you owe. And more than you can imagine God will forgive you and welcome you back and restore you and receive you and celebrate you. And more than you can imagine if you ever believe that you'll start to love other people. And more than you can imagine, you'll start to forgive people ways that you think is impossible. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. Supernaturally, he does things that are naturally impossible for us. Built on the truth of the gospel. Calling his people to believe who he is and trust him and live by that. And if you give me time to pull this up on my phone, I ran across just the best illustration of this this past week, and I sent it to a couple guys in a text message because I hope that would make it a little easier to find like the, the story again. And then my phone always closes when I'm up here, so just be patient with me for just a second because this is worth it. So try to set this up quickly so I don't have to read a lot of the article. There was a guy that had a dog that he loved, like a really expensive bred $5,000 type dog, and it got stolen. He starts looking for the dog. He gets a tip that there's a woman who has stolen it. He finds out where she is. He goes to confront her, and he says, I knew in my heart this person had Darla, my dog, and I told her that I wasn't mad at her. So let me scroll on down here to the next part. The moment I saw her, talking about the dog, I just ran to her and picked her up. It felt almost too good to be true. We were so happy to see each other. But then he says, I looked at the woman who'd taken my dog, and she had stolen it to sell the dog for drug money. That's what the story ends up being because she was an addict. He says, she was very evidently hooked on drugs. I gave her a hug and she said, why would you hug a piece of trash, is what we'll use this morning, like me? This is so good. Morton told her, I was addicted to drugs for years. I know what you're on. I know what you're doing. Listen to this. I completely forgive you. But instead of giving her the reward money for the dog, he'd offered a reward because he was afraid she would spend it on drugs. Morton asked whether he could pay for her to go to rehab. She said yes, and he started making arrangements. I want you to think about this. This woman steals his dog, several thousand dollars. He finds her, catches her, and his response is, I forgive you, can I help you? Why was that his response? It's really, really clear. Because he knew he was her. He's, in the article, I think he said that he tried like 15 times to get off drugs before he finally got sober. And he looked at her and he said, where she is is where I've been. I know what it's like to be there and I know what it's like to be rescued from there and I want you to be rescued from there. 
The only way that you ever become a person like that is if you believe this piece about your $7.2 billion debt to God. As long as you look at your sin and it's this small thing in your mind and you look at other people's sin and it's this great big thing in your mind, no, you're not going to be able to forgive them because you don't see yourself as them. You still think you are better than them. You're different from them. The reason that you have to see who you are before God, the truth about your sin against Him and your debt toward Him is because that's what starts to melt your heart in response to His grace. That's when you start to become the people that Jesus is describing when He describes His church. Like if you wanted to boil it down in one way, you can't be the church until you believe what a wretched sinner you are. (laughs) Do you see that this morning? Like as long as you're still living in this place of self-righteousness and self-effort and self-achievement and you think that you're good enough or at least that you're pretty good or if nothing else, at least I'm better than them, you're not the church. Because the church is a whole bunch of people who knows I'm wrecked, I'm lost, I'm hopeless without Jesus. There was no hope for me. I was gone. I was lost in my sin. And he came and he found me and he grabbed hold of me and he rescued me and he forgave me and he showed me mercy. And anytime I see anyone in that same condition, I know that was me. That was me. And I know what it's like for somebody to come and rescue me. And I want to go and rescue them. I want them to know this king who forgives all debts. And if the way they know him is through me forgiving them, then please, God, use me that way. Let me run into fires to rescue people. Let me run and find the outcast and the lost and the broken and the rejected because that's who my king is. Church, let us be that type of people. See Jesus this morning. See his gospel. See his love for you. See the type of church that he builds and pray with me that he'll build us into that type of church. Let's have those relationships with one another. Let's have community groups that are in each other's lives that are a source of mercy and grace and restoration and healing and confession. Let's go out into the world with that type of grace, that type of mercy, that type of gospel. What if, what if he just decides Yeah, I'm going to build my church that way right here because these people believe this. This is what I've told them. Believe who I am. It's not you go do something. Believe who he is and he'll build his church. He'll turn you. You don't go do. Let him turn you into that type of person because you believe who he is. So will you pray with me right now that he'll be doing this in our hearts, that he would really be working in our hearts this way, that he would build his church this way. And we're going to worship together. Our worship team's going to come up and we're going to thank Jesus for his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. We're going to thank him for his goodness and his love. We're going to worship together, and we're going to ask him to be working in our hearts. So pray with me right now. Thank you, Jesus. That when we were lost, you came and found us. thank you that you didn't write us off and turn your back and just go somewhere else but that each one the one mattered to you and you just you wouldn't stop and you weren't done and it wasn't too much 
thank you that it depends on you and not on us. Thank you that you paid the whole debt with your broken body and your shed blood. Please, by your spirit, keep doing the work. I know that you've done all of it so far, but please keep doing the rest of it today and open our eyes to really see it and soften our hearts to really believe it and love you and trust you and build your church. Jesus, build your church. It's your promise. It's your word. And so we know that you have to do it and you will do it. Build your church on the truth of who you are. And build your church into people who are living out your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness in the gospel. Change our lives. Change us. Change your world through us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.